Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast. This is the podcast where you'll find the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And now, here is your host, the CEO of Access Entertainment and the Media Excellence Awards, the original media maven herself, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment and PR and your host for Media Maven's podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Pirate, who is my sportscaster, public affairs, and voice of God. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the show. Hello, Sarah. I just wish it would kind of cool down around Arizona right now so I can get out and take a hike. I, you know what? I knew there was going to be so much time today in our podcast talking to people before the weather came up again because I'm in LA and I went for a huge hike yesterday and it is beautiful out but climate control and ecosystems is a part of our daily living since COVID we're on lockdown trying to be better human beings which means our guest today is going to be such a great guest we have Dr. Reed Noss who's a chief scientist for the Conservation Science Center based out of Florida Reed welcome to the show we're so glad you're here with us today it's my pleasure. I just feel like all our conversations are been COVID. And then I'm starting to see more people realize why we're on lockdown all year. Because I've been out on walks and hikes and I've noticed grass is greener. There's more flowers. I'm seeing squirrels that are actually getting really chubby because there's no cars. There's no humans. There's no animals. They are actually taking back the world for at least a little bit to breathe. And I know that between politics and covid we have to focus and be better humans, do good, be good, because we walk, talk, litter, pollute, live on this planet, and we've got to do something, take actions to better the ecosystems. And I know this is kind of a broad subject, but I'm so excited you're here. Tell us a little bit about what, you're the chief scientist, your main focus has been ecosystems, climate change, correct? And yes, so they're, they're connected. How's it going? What have you been working on? Where is your primary focus with all this? And has it changed now that we're in COVID? My focus hasn't changed that much since COVID. Basically, my whole career, I've been working in the conservation field, specifically the field of conservation biology. And I'm, I'm in this field out of, out of love and, and out of sadness, and out of love for the natural world and, and out of sadness for what I see happening to it. The field of conservation biology, by that name, is is fairly young. It goes back just a few decades, but people have been doing work along these lines um, in science for more than a century. So we have a foundation to build on, but we're still kind of losing the game. Some co-authors and I just published a paper that's actually getting a lot of press uh, just a couple of weeks ago on plant extinctions in North America, specifically U.S. and Canada. And it turns out we've lost about 65 species of plants since European settlement in the U.S. and Canada, which is more than twice what some previous estimates had had shown. We did a very detailed survey, interviewed experts all over the continent. And so it's it's kind of startling that all these losses occurred and people didn't even know about it. In fact, some of these species had already been extinct for over a century and they were discovered by as new to science by looking at old herbarium sheets where the plants had been mounted and stuck in herbariums, which is a kind of museum of, of plants. And they were described as new species long after they went extinct. And of course, there's been efforts to try to find these species in the wild to rediscover them that have been going on in some cases for a long time without success. Hopefully, some of them will be rediscovered. That does happen from time to time. 
But I think, you know, what I'm working on mostly now, my latest book project actually is, is Endangered Ecosystems of North America and a strategy for dealing with that problem. And basically the idea is, is that ecosystems across the continent have declined in area, they've declined in quality, they've been degraded by all kinds of things, pollution, obviously, suppression of natural fires, all kinds of things that have led them to decline. And of course, development, uh, conversion to agriculture, etc. The way we deal with this problem, though, the way we have been dealing with it is pretty much species by species. You know, we petition to get a species listed under the Endangered Species Act or a companion act in, in Canada. And we do this species by species. And now thousands of species are listed, but the ecosystems are still declining. And it seems that a more cost efficient way to approach this problem is to protect whole ecosystems, because when ecosystems decline in area or quality, so do the species associated with them. And way back in the early 90s, some two co-authors and I published a, a U.S. Department of Interior report on the endangered ecosystems of the United States. And so partly what I'm doing in this new book is to update that and extend it over the entire continent, actually going, including northern Mexico, as well as all of Canada, Greenland, and of course, all the United States. And it's basically not, it's not just lamenting this, this terrible loss of ecosystems, but figuring out how we can reverse that. So that's the main thing I'm working on, along with lots of other little projects. Is the damage reversible? Because I mean, we see so much stuff about what's going on with all these, like, I know rhinos were in danger. There's so much bad people and so much going on, the politics that drive all of those decisions. If being better at yeah. what you're doing and educating us and uncovering this, can this be reversed or is there so much extensive damage? It's just going to be a whole new world to protect what's ahead of us versus bringing and saving yeah. what's been behind us. Well, of course, it's too early to say whether we can really succeed, but there is hope. There is the, a strong possibility. For example, about half of the earth right now is relatively pristine, which is somewhat surprising. Now, a lot of that is, you know, very high latitude areas like tundra and boreal forest or else desert like the Sahara. But even in developed landscapes, there are, there are little pockets of nature, for example, in Europe and the eastern U.S., um, that are still relatively intact and still have their native species for the most part. They've lost some. And so the, it comes down to identifying those areas that are best representative of the ecosystems that they encompass and getting those areas protected, and especially concentrating on those areas that contain many species that are found nowhere else in the world. We call these endemics, species restricted to particular small areas or sometimes fairly large areas. So if we can identify those, those so-called hotspots of biodiversity where many, many species found nowhere else in the world are concentrated, protect them along with their ecosystem that they depend on, we can do a good job. We might actually be able to halt the extinction crisis, which, you know, of all the crises in the world, the extinction crisis is really the only one that's irreversible. Once mm -hmm. the species goes extinct, it's gone for good. So this is something that we have to deal with if we want to maintain well, what we have left. So, so I, and I, do, I don't want to go down the whole COVID path on this, but I, you brought up a very yeah. valid point, Reed. Uh, sorry, Joe has a question, but like, yeah. I don't want to. Be, I'm right. I will. Like, I just got to get this out. We the extinction. These these areas, these pockets of the world. You know, we're worried about polar bears, the melting ice caps. But yeah. you look at COVID and it, controversy or not was in the lab. Does some 
Buddy Eat a Bat, the wet markets. I never saw a lot of these scientists, these conservationists during the beginning of COVID. They were over in these faraway lands around the world, especially in China, that there's so many amazing, beautiful creatures and animals and species that are exotic that you would never know existed, that you're like, what is that? That looks weird. These are millions of animals that live on our planet, but people feel, and I'm just gonna go down this rabbit hole. It's an ego, it's just a bunch of bullshit. Look, I ate this, I ate a foreign animal, I ate a furry thing. These animals are wild animals. Bats have over 189 of the deadliest diseases. Why, when they fly at night, their temperature goes up to keep their the diseases yep. from you know exploding and why you can't just eat this stuff. But I think people don't understand killing these beautiful creatures in Africa illegally on the game reserves, eating exotic things in other parts of the world is not a bragging right. You're literally killing a species, another basic species on our planet that's there for a reason. And that's my big issue. I mean, I'm an animal person. It is what it is. But my bigger issue is you can't go to faraway lands and eat weird exotic animals because it's a cool thing to do. That's how pandemic starts. That's how we're in the situation. And that is just, there's no reason. There's not tons of food out there. You don't need to go eat something weird just to have a bragging rate. People like that, I can't stand. That's not a bragging rate. You just murdered and killed off a species of potential. And then you've got everybody sick because you don't know what those exotic animals are carrying that is so deadly. That's my issue where yeah. there's got to be more light. But that does affect their ecosystem like bees. You create flowers and gardens, you preserve the ecosystem. It's just got to start somewhere. Well, you know, killing wildlife for food, of course, in some parts of the world is necessary. People actually depend on wild animals for their, their diet. And of course, we most of us also eat, you know, fish and almost all fish on a global scale are still wild. We do farm fish, of course, but most of the fish consumed globally is wild. So, you know, eating wild animals by itself is, you know, not necessarily problematic. However, if we're eating animals and to the point where they're going extinct, which which has happened. There are a number of species that have been overhunted, overharvested to extinction. But you know, the biggest problem, more than you know, eating endangered species, is frankly, you know, just the growth of the human population and all the room that we need to support that population. Right. You know, so there the more people, then the more agriculture we have to have, uh, the more roads, the bigger cities, and we lose natural habitat, and that's. That habitat loss is really the biggest threat. Climate change is a close second, you know, becoming more problematic all the time. But the biggest threat still is the loss and, and degradation of natural habitat. Reed, we are seeing a huge uh, difference in after the election of politics. Let's say uh, President-elect Biden called you up and said, Reed, what is the one thing I need to do that will help the environment? What would you tell him? I would say the main thing we need to do is vastly expand our network of parks and other protected areas in the United States. And we've done a fairly good job in this country, but there's still a lot of really important areas, these, these hot spots I'm talking about, that are still unprotected and could be protected with, with little or no economic impact. And in fact, in many cases, when you create parks, you actually improve the local economy through ecotourism and other means. So I would say the first thing is to identify the most important areas for protection, the kinds of things I was talking about earlier, like areas with 
lots of species found there that are found nowhere else. And also the most, well, the highest quality examples of all ecosystem types, which is more a proactive strategy. If we do that, most of our other big conservation problems, not all our environmental problems, but our big conservation problems would be close to solution. So I hope he does call me. <laughs> I, I actually did speak. <laughs> Years ago, I was part of a team that met with President Clinton's transition team to advise them on environmental priorities. So it is possible that I will be contacted to play a similar role this time. Good. I, I'm glad to hear that because I'm you, you met with Bruce Babbitt quite a bit, I imagine. Yeah, I know Bruce personally. Yeah, just had dinner with him last year. Really? Yeah. So but my question is, and, and, and I, I believe this was a big issue politically when Trump came into presidency years ago. You know, you're cutting down the trees. We need lumber. We need stuff. And which kills the ecosystem. But then the other side, we're all about recycling and stuff. And so are these decisions politically motivated as in it may take too much money to up with the systems to recycle all this stuff versus just taking up a little bit more property. I mean, at which I just kind of feel like maybe it's a financial decision, but yeah. no, either way, it's not a good decision because there's only so much landfill out there. And there's like Montana, Yosemite, there's some beautiful, wide, vast open spaces in the middle of the states. You got the east and west coast that are just being so built up. And so there's such pristine areas around the world. But I kind of feel like do you spend the billions trying to create new recyclables because you got to start with the people to recycle or is it just easier to say, OK, that's an area property. There's no building as part of a government, government park, so to speak. Let's just, it's OK to take that portion over I me. Mean, where is the balance on this and which way are we tipping on this? Well, you know, as far as recycling, you know, it's um, I recycle, but it's. You know, it's we're kind of re pushing it to its limits already. You know, recycling facilities are overwhelmed. And maybe you've heard, I've read a number of cases where a lot of what you put in your recycling bins actually ends up going to the landfill because the recycling centers are totally overwhelmed. And by that, I'm not trying to suggest that we shouldn't keep recycling, but I think we are kind of pushing it to its limits. Much more intelligent would be what we did in the old days and just not use something unless it's reusable. We should have to return all of our bottles, for example, like, like we used to when, when we were kids. It shouldn't have to be put in a recycling bin. It should go back and be cleaned and refilled until it, it's finally worn out, which is sometimes quite a while. So I think we got to rethink the whole business. And it, a lot of it is um, political because we have these you know, industry lobbyists who it's in, it's in their advantage for us to be as wasteful as possible right. because then they get to sell more stuff for us to use. Right. And then we throw it out and we buy more. So it's we've kind of gotten into this sick system. And, you know, I'm I'm a capitalist, but this is a real flaw of capitalism when we don't have regulation to control that kind of activity. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we can do a lot better than we've been doing in terms of reusing materials and just using less of everything. We don't have to be impoverished ourselves. We can just learn to taper back on things, consuming things that we don't really need, things that we buy for status, for example. I mean, we all have things that we buy and we like that we don't really need, right? That's certainly true for me, but there is a limit to that. You know, we just need to tone it down a little bit. Let me ask you, you've been very successful in uh, helping the Southern grasslands grow, prosper, is there something that we can learn from what you've done down there to maybe something like in Arizona or other areas 
where we can help preserve our ecosystems? Yeah, that, that's a good question, Joe. I, I started getting interested in grasslands, broadly speaking, including savannas and open woodlands of the southeastern U.S. years ago because I noticed that, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the old story about, who was it? The, the comedian who said that, um, oh, I won't remember the line, so I won't even try. <laughs> but they don't get any any credit. I mean, people people love their forests, Right. Very few people love grasslands. You almost have to be a, a botany nerd to, to love grasslands. But that can change if you start to learn more about them. And that's the really cool thing about natural history. It's almost, it's exciting to everybody if it's introduced in an engaging way. Teaching people about plants and animals, their habits, their needs, little quirks of their life histories, you know, what their larvae look like, etc. Once you get people interested in natural history, they will want to protect those things that they're interested in, protect those things that they love. And so what we're seeing in the Southeast, it's really become kind of a movement. We have a a fairly large organization now called the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative that I'm associated with. And it has partners throughout all the Southeastern states that are looking ways to discover the last remnants of these natural grasslands, protect them, and also restore areas that have been lost because in general we've lost over 90 percent of our grasslands in the southeastern u.s and some particular types are literally gone there's no examples left all we have is some historical descriptions some historical photos but nothing really left on the ground is that due to development several reasons the original big reasons were that grasslands were easier to convert to agriculture than forests Right? You don't have to cut the trees and dig out the root systems and all that. You just plow them, right? And you've got yourself an agricultural field. Now, actually, not all grasslands are like that. Some have very thin, rocky soils, so they didn't make good use for agriculture. But a lot of those have been built on. So it was agriculture and then you know residential and urban development, but also suppression of natural fires. Um, most of our grasslands in the world are dependent on frequent, regular fires. And originally, that was those fires were ignited primarily by lightning, but then the Native Americans burned extensively throughout the continent. And then when whites came, the first white settlers actually pretty much mimicked the Indians, and they burned as well because they found that if they burn, there's there's fewer bugs, they have more open space, they can see enemies approaching, they can hunt easier. And so the early settlers actually burned a lot. But then once we became more you know, urban and more detached from our natural landscapes, we stopped burning. And anytime a natural fire started, we go and put it out as soon as possible. And of course, that fire suppression is one of the major reasons why a lot of these um, uncontrollable fires on, on the West Coast are burning is because we let all this wood and other fuel build up that should never have gotten to those loads because fires were suppressed. So, yeah, so I live in L.A. and it was interesting. Last November, I was in New York. Remember the, remember the big fires ripped through Paradise and Malibu? Yeah. And like, oh, my God, it wasn't like, you know, it was the landscaping, the smoke, the sky was uh, reds and purples. You didn't even know if it was night or day anymore. But just the animals is what broke my heart. And they were pulling horses down to the beach, tethered to lifeguard stands with smoke and red i mean they couldn't breathe the firemen were literally giving up and there's photos of their drinking water in their hands to get water to the horses i mean it was so i mean yeah. all 
human lives are important, but the fact that they stopped and took moments to get these animals, the safety, just to me was the most heartbreaking and most amazing thing that for a minute, they literally put the yeah, animals first. Some girl saw a big woolly sheep just running terrified. She was getting out with her dogs and cats. I mean, the, you could just see the flames within feet away from her. It was a panic. It was amazing how they got this photo. She stopped. Firemen ran over, like, get back in your car. She literally had, they picked this big fuzzy sheep up. They didn't know where it came from. Put it in the back of her car with the dogs. Put blankets over them. And she drove off and went to a farm. But, I mean, it's like the people were becoming less about, it. it, it fires of fire, it's going to do destruction. But they were looking at the animals. And, like, there was coyotes. And then some guy had this huge, monster, gorgeous mansion. And he saw, he was protected. But he saw this coyote it would have died. It couldn't walk. So it's burnt for miles around. The paws were burnt. He could barely move. He put food and water out every day for two months, just because he knew if this coyote had to go find food, he wasn't going to make it. He was burnt. He needed food and water. So these guys are putting food and water out for the bobcats, for coyotes. You know, they had big properties because they hunkered down till they healed and animal people could get up there and fed them water and food every day for weeks until they were safe enough or until you know they had the state parks come in the rescue and it's just it was such a heartwarming thing to finally see people put animals first over their own possessions i know miley cyrus lost everything her house decimated and her biggest thing from a celebrity didn't care about the money the status material things her panic was getting I think like 36 animals, pigs, chickens. I mean, she had a farm. Her only focus was to get the animals out of there safely. So I think we've seen through these fires, at least in California, how bad they've been. People are actually becoming a little bit more humanistic. Let's save the animals. Let's not abandon. You know, part of our ecosystem does include animals and humans. We all have pets. But it's weird because if you look at the ecosystem, the burning of the properties, the land, the mountains, the air quality, which this literally filtered down into the beaches, which then affects the ecosystem of the beach and the water. I mean, it's amazing how much damage. People think fires are just contained to burning trees and bushes. It really extends to life, humans, ocean, animals, land. I mean, it really does so much damage to the atmosphere. People don't understand how damaging these brush fires are. It's not about your possessions. I you know. have insurance. You can't, like you said, you can't reverse. Well, you can, but you can't. Like I love that. You, I think it's uh, who is it? Sea World. That you know they rescue sea pups and they rescue penguins and get them back out there. I mean, you, you, there's got to be more of that right now because that that's that's the world we live in. We live in their world. They don't live in our world. But I, I just I don't know where I'm. No, like, I, I agree completely, and it's it's very encouraging that a lot of people do step up and think about other species, not just themselves and other people, not just themselves. Um, and that's that's a good sign. It shows we still, I think, have the potential to have some compassion, not just for other people, but for other species. And that is, um, it shows that ethics might still be able to play a role in, in conservation. Yeah, I just think the recycling is an issue because, you know, you see what are the little six-pack plastic things tangled around turtles and birds. And right. I hate to say it, is it truly lack of help to help protect the ecosystems that you're, you know, you're writing about, you're fighting, you're working on your whole life, or is it the lack of money to get the people and equipment to save the animals? Is there a where is politics, I guess, for lack of a better word, on moving the needle on this? Yeah, well, you know, 
as, as far as money, our, our society historically and today spends virtually nothing on conservation compared to so many other things. I mean, you can protect a hell of a lot of acreage of land for the same price as putting in, you know, a few miles of new highway, for example. It's really pretty trivial what it would take to protect what needs to be protected to prevent most extinctions in the United States and the rest of North America. So I, I think it's not really the, the money per se, it's the political will to do it. But also it's an educational effort. I, I think most people don't know, unfortunately, just how wonderful our biodiversity is on this continent and how much is left, but also how much it's threatened. And if I think if more people understood that, and if, um, unfortunately, I think with increasing urbanization, a lot of people don't get outdoors into natural areas anymore. And so they don't even, they don't have that personal connection that earlier generations might have had. And that, that bothers me. Ironically, urban people tend to vote more pro-environmental than rural people. But yeah. it's, it's a really strange thing because rural people still, if you interview them or, and give them surveys about nature, they care just as much. So it's more for various political reasons. They just don't like the government telling them what to do as much. But I think if, if we had more people learn from skilled naturalists about what is out there in the wild, they would become very interested and they would want to protect more and they would think about the environment when they go to vote. And they would vote for those candidates that are likely to do the best job protecting and restoring nature. Let me get back to the whole thing about the forest and, and the forest fires what would you see as the best way to protect these forests? I, I, we've had laughable ideas come out of the uh, government raking the forest or whatnot. What is right. the, what, I mean, are we talking controlled burns? Is that what you're looking at? Controlled burns is one of the most important things that can be done for some forest types, especially the forests that are very naturally very open. Mm-hmm. We call those woodlands or in some cases savannas if they're extremely open. The forests that are naturally dense, however, you can't really prescribe and burn those. They're actually, the species there are adapted to infrequent, very, very severe fires. Mm. But the area of forests like that has expanded as the naturally more open forests have experienced fire suppression and become denser themselves. And so forests that used to burn very mild, you know, light burns every few years, now have these catastrophic fires every few decades. And a lot of it is climate. You know, we can't do much in the short term about fixing global warming. It's all it's got its own inertia. It's already happening. It's going to happen. Even if we stop today burning fossil fuels, the CO2 levels in the atmosphere are going to be extremely high for another few centuries. And so we're going to have to deal with this problem due to past uh, insults that we've wreaked on the natural world. But Climate right now is getting hotter and drier, and especially in the West, that means more severe fires. Uh, and it's a lot of them just aren't stoppable. And there it becomes a question of just not building your homes in those areas at all. Chaparral is another, um, you know, which is a dominant vegetation type in coastal Southern California, of course, including the LA Basin. Chaparral naturally burns very hot. And so it's just a question of not building and maybe even moving homes out of those areas because we can't possibly defend them all. Well, so I know Gavin Newsom is, you know, he made a comment when this last huge fire sweep came through California that 
he finally admitted we have let things overgrown. We're trying to preserve nature, preserve the ecosystems by leaving it alone. But now he's come to his conclusion. We have to pre-burn. We've got to cut yeah. down because of fires. I learned a long time ago, not sure if there's any truth to this, that if you have a house, you're up in the canyons or wherever, talk about plants and biodiversity, you plant plants that don't burn, like ice plants. I know somebody right. who had... He took out all the cactus, took out all the plants. He had nothing but ice plants around his house up there. It was an artist because he knew where he lived. He knew the, you know, how serious it was and everything. So he planted ice plants and literally his house was probably saved when the big fires years ago because ice plants don't burn. So it is it more of an education of if you're going to keep building these areas, because like you said, human population, should we be focusing on what are safe non-burnable plants no it's fire wise yeah i think that's the landscaping yeah fire wise landscaping is that is that a term for ice is that a science term for ice plants no (laughs) i'm not going to cheer on ice plants because they're non-native you see unfortunately they spread outside of your yard into natural habitats the most problematic along the coast but so i'm not going to say that but there are ways to use native plants or just like sand and gravel, kind of like a Zen garden type of scenario around your home, that's not going to burn. There are ways to make very attractive landscaping that is not going to burn. And of course, the house itself, a lot of these fires occur not from fire literally burning right up to the, you know, the door of the house, but by embers sailing through the wind and landing on the roof or landing on a wood pile next to the house or something like that. So we need to fireproof the homes, the structures themselves, not put flammable material right next to the homes. There's a lot can be done. I mean, it, it will cost some money. And I think government will have to subsidize some of this firewise uh, reconstruction, if you will, renovation. But I think it would be well worth it. In the long run, it will probably save a lot of money if we can make our, our structures, including all, all of our homes, a lot more fireproof. I also think it's like the coronavirus. The virus doesn't spread and move people do. And I know there's been a lot of arsonists and I feel like there's only so much we could do in lightning storms if power edges go out. But it's just, there needs to be, the destroying our planet and the ecosystems isn't quite nature and things are uncontrollable. It starts with humans. It starts with the people who are doing stupid stuff. Somebody was trying to do a campfire during COVID. That's how this last yeah. massive fire that swept through. And it's like, Come on. Like that's where I feel politically there needs to be much more severe penalties because it's a lot of like we had this great guy on who was known as the ethical hacker, an ethical hacker of um mm-hmm. and all about cybersecurity and very well known on that. And Raphael's like when it comes to cybersecurity, it's not so much the hacking and the cybersecurity and fraud and online stuff. It's humans, it's people who are okay putting their credit cards, putting in their phone numbers. I, a lot of where we are as a destructive society is because we as human beings are doing stupid stuff and caring less about our environment than our own selves. I think that is where it's not gonna answer the ecosystem problems and climate control, but it's a start of educating the public. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, education in general. I mean, I started out as an education major. That was my first degree in college. And so I, and my first jobs were outdoor and environmental education. So I've, I've been committed to that my whole life and remain so. I think in, not in every area, not just concerning the environment, but better education will serve society a lot better. Does that mean that we have to start when they're young? 
Absolutely. It's just one of those things where it really makes me sad being from that that field, environmental education. We we did a lot more of that for young children in our public education system than we do today. During much of the 20th century, especially early and mid 20th century, nature study was a required part of the curriculum for most school systems in the United States. You grew up going to school and learning about nature. And a lot of the great conservationists you know, of the late 20th century, for example, were exposed to that as children in their school systems. We don't have that anymore. When I was um, a college student, particularly like in the 70s, the environmental education movement kind of peaked. And I worked, for example, for a couple of years in an outdoor school where teachers would come with their classes and spend the week there and live in dorms. And then every day the kids would be broken into groups who would go around through the forest with a naturalist and learn about nature, have fun, you know, play games, explore. I, I still, it's, it's one of the most gratifying things that happens. I, I still get occasional emails or a Facebook message from somebody who, a kid that I taught, you know, either at these outdoor schools or summer camps back in the 70s or 80s, who said that that changed their life. And they've been, you know, interested in nature ever since. And it just was one of the most important things that ever happened to when I but we don't have as much of that now. A lot of those schools have closed down. Yeah. Sorry. Didn't, I, oh, no, I was just going to ask you, yeah. uh, when you look at conservationists, who do you try to model yourself after? Well, I have several heroes, probably none of, you know, most of which you've probably not heard of. But, you know, there's one person who's, who's fairly well known in my field who is considered the father of wildlife management. But he was much more than that. A guy named Aldo Leopold, mm-hmm. who um, early in his career, he worked as a forester in the southwest. He wrote some, in addition to his scientific articles, he wrote these beautiful essays that were published after his death at a fairly young age from a heart attack. But he has influenced, you know, my generation very heavily. But there were people before him going back to explore naturalists like Alexander von Humboldt from Prussia in the early 19th century, Charles Darwin, one of the greatest naturalists of all time. These are the kind of people that who are my heroes, and I, I try to emulate as best I can. Every one of those people really loved nature. It wasn't just a scientific interest. They were committed to protecting nature even way back in those times. And in fact, uh, European scientists in particular were some of the first conservationists globally who tried to get governments to put limits on logging and so on to protect not only What's so for example, water supply for humans, but also to protect nature. I have a question for you, Reed. You know, we're getting so much more advanced in technology. How is the government or these conservationists, how much are they leaning on and adapting to technologies and new forms of tech to keep the ecosystems alive? It's actually remarkable how much technology is used. I mean, we can, for example, now we use something called eDNA, where we can sample the environment, even the air, but in particular like the soil and other areas of an ecosystem and find out what species are there without even having to actually find the individual plants and animals. We can just sample, we call this environmental DNA. You know, species shed their their leaves, their feathers, their hair, and that DNA remains in that system. Drones are used very heavily now for surveying natural areas, for monitoring populations. I mean, I'm not very tech savvy myself. The only high technology that I use a lot is um, a fancy camera because I'm a nature (laughs) photographer and that's one of my 
main interest. But, and I have gotten pretty good at, at the Canada digital cameras, but other than that, I'm pretty simplistic. What so, camera do you have? I have a, well, I have a, a couple, but a Nikon D850 is my, my main camera. Good camera. Cost more than my car. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting because, so, you know, we run and produce, you know, besides being the PR firm, one of the largest global awards that honors innovation leadership for all things mobile tech entertainment. And four or five years ago, we had an, we created an environmental awareness award at the time. And through NOSA and some of the governments were behind this, putting money into using mobile and Bluetooth. It was mainly for the whales because they were saying more whales are being killed by the shipping lanes versus the, you know, right. the poachers now. And so the International Fund for Animal Welfare, a good friend of mine ran all the corporate communications and introduced us to these guys. And they used this, the government put a lot of money in, really jumped up on the mobile bandwagon. So every major shipping lane, every major shipping company across the world has this mobile tech. So if there's a pot of whales or babies or so many mm-hmm. miles ahead, they could take, you know, these are their monster ship. You just don't turn a corner and stop quickly, but they're able to stop in advance or turn to let the pods and the babies quietly go through safely without That's caught great. in nets and engines. And they literally decreased the, I mean, I don't think I mean, a lot of these whales, I don't know if they were extinct or not, but they decreased the deaths in whales to where it was so low because we found out majority it was caught in these major international shipping waters. It wasn't poachers. And so they really threw in and went two years in R&D in the mobile to outfit every major ship with mobile. And if there you see a whale in distress and there's GPS tracking, they could radio back in on the sonar on the pinpoint, the exact place in the ocean within like a mile to Coast Guards and um, animal support to get out there to save, to help them. It's just, it was the first time I've ever really seen such a big initiative leading into tech to better society or to conserve something in the world. And it was, it was amazing to see these guys take that award. Yeah, that's well-deserved. I think that's an amazing example of how to use technology for conservation. Yeah. Yeah. My thing is that we ran to a startup company a while ago and they had a great technology, bad leadership. But great technology, they built this weird sonar thing that was put up deep into the forest. And it was like, a you know how animals could only hear certain things that humans can't hear? Like that, that like sonars and the sign is a certain pitch that only animals up to a certain like 10, 20 miles could hear. Like if there was smoke, you know, with the smoke, there's fire and it would be an alert. So animals would hear it and they would just scatter for, this in, for safety, but it also ping back to whatever the fire station or rangers within so many miles in these big national forests to try to get on top of the fire before it does more damage. And it was just sad to me that it was such a brilliant use of technology, but they never got it off the ground or put the money into it. And I just thought it was a phenomenal piece of technology to actually prevent more damage and destruction in the world. Yeah, I'd like to see that used more often. You know, another technology that's been very helpful for ecosystem level conservation, the kind of work I do is just the satellite imagery, the kind of images you can get and the precision and resolution of those images and their interpretation, you know, computer programs, artificial intelligence that can, you know, identify the particular type of ecosystem, you know, up down to a you know, one square meter from a satellite image. Yeah. And that's, it's just incredible compared to the really primitive stuff we were using just a couple of decades ago. Yeah. And I would definitely send you offline. I would send you this company. I mean, they created it. It was a beautiful concept marketing plan, but there was no money to fund it. So they dropped it. And to me, 
It's a small thing, but if that small thing helps prevent hundreds of millions of acres and animals, it starts somewhere, you know? So, you know, we're running out of time soon. I want to touch base on this. You have a book or white paper you just released. You have a book you're working on. Can you kind of tell everybody what those are about, if they're available, where we can we get them? Sure. The the article I referred to, the extinction, plant extinction article, first author, the lead author is a guy named Wesley Knapp, a colleague of mine. And that was published in, um, just published in the journal Conservation Biology. Mm-hmm. And it's open access. The whole journal isn't, but if you pay an extra fee, they make the paper open access. So it's okay. extinct plants of North America, U.S. and Mexico. And then uh, as far as books, I, I have um, eight books. Uh, the most recent one, I published two years ago, and that's Fire Ecology of Florida in the Southeastern Coastal Plain, although it has a lot of general fire ecology that would be applicable elsewhere. Uh, before that, I published a book. The one before that was on the grasslands of the Southeast, like we were talking about earlier. My most popular book, the one that sold the most and is cited or quoted the most is um, my first book, which was in 1994 called Saving Nature's Legacy, available through Island Press. And that was co-authored by a colleague, Alan Cooperider, and that's been used a lot in courses and it's still selling well, un- unbelievably. Although, you know, when you first write author a book in this field, you think, well, you know, this probably sell maybe a few thousand, you know, very few books in the environmental field sell more than two or three thousand. And, you know, so I was, Alan Cooperider and I were thinking, well, this is going to be great. We make a little extra money on um, royalties and it finally hit 10,000 after about a decade. And that's much better. Like better than 98% of all books in the field. So, What's your current book you're working on? When is that going to be released? That's the one. Well, it's been slow because I have, haven't had any funding for it. It's, it's on endangered ecosystems of North America. And that's this. I only have a first couple chapters written. I wanted to travel a lot more around the continent, which takes money. And also with COVID, that's yeah. been put on hold. But I am working with some Canadians in, in particular who are trying to raise money to help support me in my writing of that book. So once COVID is over and we're allowed back into Canada again, hopefully I'll start to make more progress on that. <laughs> That's great. So, Thanks. so re, quick question. This is, I'm so glad you came on. I feel like the ecosystem is not just plants. It's not just it's, it's everything. There's so much out there. And we would love to have you come back because we haven't even touched base on the big cats, the animals, and how they're, the big animals are disrupting, growing, and contributing to the ecosystem. And it's such a conversation I want to continue on. I think we should definitely have you back after the holiday. When COVID's a little bit more, whatever our normal is, we would love to check back in with you and get a more update on more stuff. But for anybody out there who does have any interest from funding to books to um, scientists, whatever's going on in the world, how can they reach you? What's the best way? Um, I, I've got a, a Wikipedia page, for example, so you can look at that. But also, I, if you Google my name, my email address will, will come up. Okay. Or LinkedIn. So Dr. Yeah. Reed Noss, Chief Scientist from the Science Conservation Center out of Florida right now. I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I just This was such an educational, inspiring conversation to have with you today. Thanks. It was my pleasure to be part of this. I appreciate I, you it. Know, so this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment, your host for Meet and Maven's podcast. Joe, thank you so much 
for co-hosting another amazing podcast. Reed, thank you for spending the time with us. We wish you the best of luck with the book and definitely would love to stay in touch with you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or you want to find past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider. For more information, go to MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.